Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, here's what's coming up on this edition. You'll be hearing some comments from Greg and Julie Gorman of Gorman Leadership, who explore the concept of purpose in a marriage. Then from the stream, it's Rachel Alexander offering some examples of how certain types of communication, including some that is consistent with a Christian perspective, has been blocked by a variety of social media companies. Also coming up, it's Rona Epstein. She's a licensed psychologist, certified addictions counselor, and marriage and family therapist. You'll hear her discuss different aspects of a person's relationship with food, including spiritual implications. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Ken Klukowski of First Liberty Institute offering some analysis regarding the federal appeals court judges who have been nominated by President Trump and confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Finally, it's Ashley McGuire of the Catholic Association with comments about a ban of Christmas ads from mass transit in Washington, D.C. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Greg and Julie Gorman are the co-founders of Gorman Leadership and have authored the books Married for a Purpose, New Habits of Thinking for a Higher Way of Living, 52 Weekly Devotions for Couples, as well as the book Two Are Better Than One, God Has a Purpose for Your Marriage. I chatted with the Gormans the other day and they offered insight into the overall concept of purpose in a marriage. From that conversation, here are Greg and Julie Gorman. This theme really began to uh, take shape Uh, And God really began to speak to us uh, during a a very, very dark season in our life. We had been wildly successful in corporate America, um, were well sought out in our community, in our church, well plugged in. And uh, through a series of events, we actually moved across the country with our family three times within an 11-month period. And uh, in that that season, um, um, I, in particular, had gone from being... um, uh, very successful in, in the temporal sense and very sought after person to being nobody that anybody even knew. And I lost my sense of purpose and really was seeking God to try to figure out, you know, really what it was that he was calling me to next. And in that season, God really revealed some principles as we began to teach in, in, in these principles in businesses and use them within our own businesses he began to show us how we were using a lot of the principles that we were using to help businesses be successful in our marriage. And that's when the purpose-focused marriage, you know, where we really began to, to, to realize God has a purpose not just for Julie in her individual life and not just for me in my individual life, but he has a purpose for our marriage as well. And we all want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, right? Hmm. And so what's really cool is that when we can find a unified purpose together, whatever that happens to be um, inside of our marriage, then it really allows us, um, uh, it's, it's really helped us personally to, be, to focus our energy in, in really living into that purpose and aligning our life together to produce the type of fruit that would be able to be causative for God's purpose in our lives. And it's caused us to put more energy in that versus all of the little annoyances and uh, problems. Um, Because as we've learned, what you feed grows and what you starve dies. So if we feed the right things, then we begin to see those things actually grow in our lives rather than giving all of our attention to the problems or the issues we need to solve. 
Julie, you're up next. Share with me how you see that a married couple can really find their purpose together. How how do you go about really defining that? That is such a great question. Uh, one of the things Greg and I are extremely passionate about is helping couples and assisting them in a practical way to live purpose-focused, not problem-focused. It's kind of the concept of when David stood before Goliath. It's not that problems don't exist in our relationship, but if every thought leader's right, that what we think about comes about. Um, hmm. If what we, we, we like to say it this way, what we, uh, we gravitate towards what we contemplate. And so if our energy is focused on all of the problems, all of the issues, then we perpetuate more of the same. But when we begin to welcome God's purpose, his higher way, and I think that that's the beginning point, Bob, is it's, it's just saying, God, what is it that you have for us as a couple? And we begin to invite him to, uh, through our passions, through our um, uh, talents, and through just the general open doors that are in front of us, begin to be aware of opportunities and we live into those opportunities. Again, what we feed grows, what we starve dies. And so in the two are better than one book, what we do is we take couples through a process that starts with the foundations for every marriage purpose. So whether they land on the, you know, fat opera singer singing on the top of a lungs, ah, you know, moment of their specific purpose, what, what we really provide them is a pathway to begin to welcome God's purpose. So the foundations are in place, we build on common ground, and we take them through a process of discovering and inviting and then protecting that purpose. And then, of course, the married for a purpose, the new habits of thinking for a higher way of living are more practical ways of living that out in a day-to-day. Greg and Julie Gorman here on The Intersection. You can find out more by visiting the website marriedforapurpose.com. Next up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Rachel Alexander, Senior Editor of The Stream. She discussed with me recent attempts to block content consistent with Christian values or principles from a variety of social media sites. From that recent conversation, here is Rachel Alexander. What this site is showing is that censorship of Christian and conservative viewpoints have been increasing by these big tech giants uh, Google, which owns YouTube, um, Twitter, and Facebook, and some other of these big tech giants. And if you go over the incidences that they document from 2010 to 2017, you notice this alarming increase. And I should say this, my article, I only covered mainly uh, Christian viewpoints that have been censored. I, I didn't do a lot of the more standard conservative viewpoints because I had so much for one article. It would take another second article to go over all those incidents. So I cover a broad variety, and um, it's extremely disturbing because some of these people have been you know, permanently banned, you know, kicked off of Twitter, and there's really nothing they can do. Well, and there actually is an infographic that, or a, a graphic that NRB, the Internet Freedom Watch, has done. You have a link to it in your article at the stream, and it goes back all the way to November 2010. And this is something our listeners will remember. You had the Manhattan Declaration, which was something that was crafted by the late Chuck Colson, as well as Robert George from Princeton and Timothy George from Beeson Divinity School. And basically, the Manhattan Declaration with three tenants life, 
marriage and religious freedom. And their app was actually removed from the Apple App Store. And that's the earliest instance that is on this particular chart. But you're continuing to see, whether it be YouTube, which, as you mentioned, is owned by Google. You've got Facebook. You've got Twitter. And, these, of course, these major social media hubs and what do you see as as maybe there doesn't seem to me to be any rhyme or reason what are you what are you picking up on you know these companies are owned by these left leaning ceos and their board of directors and such and so they've decided there are certain viewpoints that they don't want to see out there and a lot of them are conservative a lot of them are christian we seem to see the biggest christian viewpoints that they don't want out there our opinions about LGBT, um, transgender, uh, sanctity of marriage, and um, pro-life issues. So if you're, you know, trying to get out a pro-life video that's pretty provocative, or you know, you disagree with same-sex marriage, um, you're likely to be censored um, by one of these platforms. So how is this done? Are there certain key words that are being isolated? And what sort of criteria are you picking up on? You know, it seems to be whenever a left-wing activist, you know, finds someone they want to target, they go and they make massive complaints to one of these tech companies. And once there's, you know, enough complaints, that's what gets the person censored or blocked or, or banned or whatever. And so um, usually the people who are the more provocative out there, um, you know, if you're, say, posting, you know, pro-life videos, but you're showing an actual abortion, for example, um, because that's more provocative, you're likely to be targeted. Well, and speaking of the abortion issue, you and I were talking about an instance not too long ago where you had a pro-life ad by a political candidate in Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn, and she had attempted to place ads on Twitter, and she was denied that access. She was not allowed to place the ads. However, because I, I would imagine her public persona, the the outcry that was generated, Twitter ended up placing, allowing those ads to be placed. However, you've got a group like Live Action, Lila Rose, a, a pro-life act, advocacy activist group that continues to not be able to place ads on Twitter. And even a number of their tweets have been blocked. Same thing for the Susan B. Anthony list, which actually stood with Representative Blackburn at the time. But still, these are these pro-life groups are having trouble getting their content on some of these social media platforms consistently. They are. And, you know, in some instances, you can fight back like there was a public outcry with the uh, banning Marsha Blackburn's ads, and so she was able to turn that around. But, you know, Twitter has these arbitrary um, decisions they make when it comes to these, you know, Christian issues. And so Lila Rose's tweets, which showed a pregnancy developing inside of a mother, they thought that was just too over the line, you know, um, too offensive. And so she's never been able to get these ads out there. Rachel Alexander here on The Intersection. The Stream's website is thestream.org. Well, next up, it's Rona Epstein. She's a licensed psychologist, certified addictions counselor, and marriage and family therapist. She discussed some of the aspects of a person's relationship to food, including physical and spiritual ramifications. 
She's the author of the book, Satisfied, A 90-Day Spiritual Journey Toward Food Freedom. This is Rona Epstein now. We were not told, be careful with sugar, it's addictive, or if we were, we laughed about it. We weren't told that it can turn into a disorder. We laughed about it, and we joked about it, and we overeat, and we joke about it, but we don't realize that for some people it really does turn into a disaster, and we don't understand that it's the same chemicals in the brain, the pleasure centers in the brain, that's the same place. Now they can see this now that we have all this new brain science. We can see that the same place in the brain where heroin and cocaine are acting is the same place where sugar and other highly palatable foods are operating in the brain and why some people can't stop and why they're going, why the doctor says you need to lose weight and the person can't stop is because they're actually addicted, even though they know it's killing them and they should stop and they want to stop, but they can't because they're actually physiologically unable to. So that's one piece, physical, emotional reasons. We eat because it comforts us. We eat because we're escaping. We eat because it gives, you know, we're kind of, um, you know, using it as a drug to, um, you know, calm our nerves, to make us feel better. You know, uh, it's a way for us to um, create a better feeling. Um, And so sometimes, you know, we're down, so we eat. It lifts our mood. Yeah. Um, and so um, some, sometimes we just do that habitually. So there's, if we've been doing that since we were little, we may have become so habituated to it that it's now become like the thing that we do to cope with life. So we're stressed, when we, so we eat. Um, so and then, you know, I think spiritually speaking, we're filling up emptiness. We're, fill, we're bored. We're lonely. We're empty, even Mm. in a sense, um, instead of turning as believers, instead of turning to God, we're turning to food. The whole point of satisfied is really to help a person who, you know, a lot of times I think when people come to see me, they know they need help and that they're really caught in a battle, but they really can't even get themselves motivated to change. And they feel guilty and ashamed and maybe even feel like um, they've let God down in, in a sense, like they know they're not right with God in their relationship with food, and they feel like um, they've let their body go, and that's not God's will. And they may even feel like, oh, I have to, I, you know, I have to get myself right for God, and then they can't. And they've lost, they, and even too, in a sense, I think a lot of people who are believers don't even realize that uh, they don't even invite God into this battle, and so they're suffering without Him. Um, people going to diet places and um, trying to get help, but it's all sort of apart from God instead of inviting him in. And it seems almost like the lights go on, like, oh, I hadn't even thought to pray uh, for help. I didn't real even think of that I need his help. Like, I can't do this, really. Um, and a lot of people really can't seem to get it going or keep it going. And um, so why why did God go out the window when it comes to the food issue, when you're having a battle that's going on every single day of your life? Why is God out the window? 
Um, and, and so, you know, we, this is a place where in a sense, we maybe even it's an opportunity to get closer to him than ever, really, because you need him more. This is where desperate dependence, um, comes in because you, you really can't do it without him (laughs) in a sense when you, a person who's really battling that deeply and the battle really does go on all day. So you need him all day. And, Mm -hmm. Um, what Satisfied does is it really helps kind of um, not so much with, give, you know, giving ideas on what to do with food. It really helps get to the heart and mind to help you get close to God and really get to a place of partnering with him to to uh, learn to rely on him and depend on him and get uh, to a place of, of dependence and um, recognizing that you need his help and that he will help you and being hopeful again and not feeling so discouraged or, um, you know, feeling like that you can actually change and, and know that he'll be there. Um, and really inviting him into a, a connection with you in this area, um, you know, where I'd say most people feel like they've lost hope. Mm. Rona Epstein here on The Intersection. Her website is Rona, R-H-O-N-A, Epstein.com. This is the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations from recent guests here on The Intersection Podcast. Also, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can also access the Intersection podcast through the Faith Radio app. You can download it through the website faithradio.org. Also through meetinghouseonline.info, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to faithradio.org, scroll over the programming tab, click on the link for The Meeting House. Ken Klukowski is senior counsel for First Liberty Institute. Recently, he shared with me analysis and commentary regarding the president's nominees to federal appeals courts, giving some background on some of them. Here now is Ken Klukowski. During the campaign, people were saying the the only skepticism anyone had was because the list was too good to be true. It can it contained uh, a list of proven, tried and true judicial conservatives, or the term we would use in the legal community would be originalists, and that means uh, a judge who is committed to believing that the only legitimate way for an unelected and thus politically unaccountable life tenured federal judge to interpret the U.S. Constitution as the supreme law of the land is to interpret it consistent with the original public meaning of what its words meant, because that's what the American people approved, and that the judge is forever bound to only stick to that meaning. And if the words ever need to be changed, it's the people, the American people, who need to do it, not a federal judge. And from that list, yes, we got Justice Neil Gorsuch, who I must say is, is more than a worthy successor to the seat left vacant by the untimely death of Justice Antonin Scalia. In the short time that we've seen Justice Gorsuch on the bench, he has been a magnificent and committed originalist right along the lines in the mold of Justice 
Scalia and Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, moving on to the federal courts of appeals, as you mentioned there, uh, that's correct. There are 179 seats on the U.S. courts of appeals. The entire U.S. is divided into 12 geographical circuits. And then there's another circuit, a 13th, that just deals with like patents and copyrights and certain specific matters. But of the 12 geographical regions in that 13th court, there's a total of 179 judgeships. President Trump, and there are close to 700 district court judgeships, President Trump came to office with 150 judicial vacancies and with more that we know that have already been announced for a total thus far of 166 that he is filling, of those he has already nominated 58 judicial nominees, and of those, just last week, with the confirmation of three of his nominees to the federal appeals court, President Trump has now successfully appointed 12, a dozen federal appeals judges, which breaks the all-time record for the most successful appellate appointments by any president in the first year of their presidency. Last week, you had three uh, federal appeals court judges confirmed. First is Steve Gratz to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. That's pretty much the upper Great Plains region. That court sits in, uh, in Missouri, and you've got uh, Iowa, Nebraska, the Dakotas, uh, and, uh, and Minnesota. And for, for Steve Gratz, what's important with Judge Gratz is that the American Bar Association had rated him not qualified to be a federal judge. Now, a lot of your listeners, like most Americans, might assume by its name that the American Bar Association or the ABA is some sort of official government body. It is not. It is a private legal organization. Less than one-third of the lawyers in America belong to it. They tend to be very much the left-of-center part uh, of the legal community. Now, Steve Gross is the former chief deputy attorney general of Nebraska, and he was a pro-life warrior. He took a partial birth abortion ban to the U.S. Supreme Court trying to get that upheld. We didn't have the votes uh, on the high court at the time. That failed in the 5-4 decision in Stenberg v. Carhartt in 2000. And he was very vocal uh, about how he believed Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided that it should be overturned. So the ABA, despite his great credentials, came out and rated him not qualified, saying that he lacked, you're going to love this, that he lacked the proper judicial temperament, which I guess means that you can't be strongly opposed to Roe v. Wade and abortion on demand. President Trump uh, cast aside their criticism and nominated and nominated this person, and the U.S. Senate confirmed Steve Gross to a lifetime appointment, which should, which should be a, a great encouragement to all the pro-life Americans out there, like many of them who listen to your show, that organizations, no matter how far back they've been involved with judicial appointments, they are now being just brushed aside by a president and a Senate majority who are committed to getting good judges confirmed, and that speaking out in favor of life is no longer a disqualification for a lifetime judgeship on the federal bench. Ken Klukowski here on The Intersection. The First Liberty website is First Liberty, spell it out, F-I-R-S-T, liberty.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Ashley McGuire, Senior Fellow for the Catholic Association. She's also authored a book called Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. 
In our conversation, she talked about the ban on Christmas ads that the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. wished to place on mass transit in the city. Here now from that conversation is Ashley McGuire. The Washington, D.C. metro system, um, it's run by the government, and every year they run all sorts of Christmas-related ads. Um, And this year they decided that they would accept all of the secular Christmas ads, which are largely to do with shopping and department stores and sales, and rejected the Archdiocese of Washington's annual ad, which has a nativity scene um, and says the words, find the perfect gift. The idea being encouraging people during the Christmas season to actually come to church uh, and learn about the actual meaning of Christmas. Um, And so they were told that their ads violated the advertising standards for the D.C. Metro um, and were rejected. And as you point out, they filed a lawsuit saying you're violating our religious beliefs. You're 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 discriminating against our speech by saying that you have this widely available platform for speech and then discriminating in particular only against their speech because of its religious content. So that's discrimination on the basis of religion. Um, And the first court, the district court, ruled against them, and they do plan to appeal. And their basic argument is, look, if you're going to open this up to everybody, you can't then turn around and say, actually, we're going to exclude only the people whose message is religious. I mean, there's a second layer to this, which is the general absurdity of telling the Catholic Church that they can't advertise for Christmas at Christmas, when in fact this is a a holiday that is entirely religious in nature. Well, there's this policy that the Metro system has back in 2015. The policy bans ads that promote or oppose any religion, religious practice, or belief. This is according to the WTOP website. Now, what's interesting is that the Metro system, this transit authority, they're a government agency. So it seems to me on free exercise grounds that an ad that portrays Christmas shouldn't be rejected. No, you're absolutely right. We're not talking about a shopping mall or some other private entity which is deciding what sorts of content they want to display. We are talking about a government-run entity that is opening up a platform Mm. and telling everybody, come on in and advertise, and then explicitly discriminating against religious speech. Mm. Elaborate just a bit more on the contention of the archdiocese. They now, of course, have have appealed to the authority and, and also gone to court over it. Sure. They're just saying you can't discriminate against us just because our the nature of our content is religious. Um, you know, it, it's no different than saying, um, you know, you have a public square and you have people sort of openly talking about their beliefs and saying, oh, if you're going to talk about religion, you have to be silent or doing, do it somewhere private. I think it's important to um, to reflect on this idea because it's not, I mean, this is not an isolated case. And it belies something deeper, which is this idea that, you know, the government's argument is that religion has to stay private. We Mm. don't want it in the public square. And that is very problematic because not only is it unconstitutional, but it basically makes people of faith into second-class citizens. It sends a message. it, It has a chilling nature on speech. And it makes people basically feel afraid um, to practice and talk about their beliefs. And it's at the end of the day, it's un-American. I mean, this is a country that was 
has was founded on ideas about religious freedom, but something that's made it unique is that this is a place that we're not afraid of religion, of the sort of peaceful, open practice of religion, um, that we tolerate a wide, diverse and pluralistic uh, representation of different faiths. And so this go the, the D.C. Metro's decision goes against all of that. It goes against our Constitution, and it goes against our American practice of of being a place where people are not afraid to practice their faith in the open. Ashley McGuire here on The Intersection. The website for the organization is thecatholicassociation.org. Well, we are nearing the end of this first Intersection podcast for 2018. Thanks for joining me. You can learn more by going to meetinghouseonline.info. Through the homepage, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes. Also, you can get connected to content from The Meeting House program. Plus, there are two blogs accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. The Intersection podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. You can learn more by going to faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.